we get a lot of students who are really worried about going on to clinical MS because they feel that they should know everything before they go out. And you go, but where you don't need to know everything because that's the reason you're going on clinical MS. You're going to develop those skills. You're going to learn from other people. Welcome back to That Vet Life. Now, most of us can identify a person or two who are integral to our development as veterinary professionals. Sometimes it's someone you worked with, other times it's a clinician or a professor from vet school. Well, in today's episode, I have the opportunity to chat with someone who inspired me to become a better vet and mentor. Carolyn Mosley is a current lecturer in clinical skills at my alma mater, the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies. Her passion for teaching the next generation of veterinarians spans wider than just clinical skills. And she also plays an important role in ensuring veterinary education continues to develop and stays current with the current profession. With over 10 years of experience in teaching, Carolyn has been witness to the changes in the goals and expectations that vet students have had for their education, which we will definitely be looking at in this episode. Additionally, we discuss the current climate in veterinary education with respect to when it's appropriate to introduce communication and clinical skills to vet students. Now, there's actually so much to talk about that we had to record a bonus episode, so you will not want to miss that. And with that, let's jump into today's episode. I can't tell you how super excited I am for this episode. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. So thank you so much for coming on to the show, Carolyn. This is a topic that in my mind, I'm like, why don't we talk about this a ton more But then I realized, again, that not everybody is as super excited about teaching and mentorship and how education has changed over the last however many years. So let's launch into this a little bit. And if you could give us a a brief overview of what your last 10 years have looked like in the teaching space so that people get an idea of where you're coming from. Okay. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited. So I... Started life as a trainee vet nurse. Well, actually, I grew up with parents running boarding kennels, so I've done a lot of handling of animals. And we used to get a variety of different animals. And then I went into vet practice and qualified as a vet nurse. I then travelled around Australia and then went into pharmaceutical repping and then came to vet school where my teaching side picked up. So I worked as a vet nurse in the hospital, first of all, doing out of hours and working with final year students. And that was actually before what we call the graduate entry program has started. So that was quite a long time ago now. So we we generally had students that were British students and not as many international students that came. And then I worked as a small nurse and then I spent some time out of vet school and then I came back and I did vet nurse training and now joined the clinical skills team and lead on the clinical skills staff. So in the last 10 years I've been working in clinical skills basically which is teaching students from first year to final year a variety of things so I generally explain to non-veterinary people that it's a variety of things from non-invasive procedures and invasive procedures so invasive procedures we do on mannequins and simulators and then the non-invasive stuff we try and do on live animals so dog handling restraints of animals you know leading a horse around that kind of stuff and then right through to taking a blood sample from a a jug in a vein and also putting a bandage on using an ophthalmoscope and that kind of stuff so that's a big variety of stuff that I do in my day-to-day teaching. It's quite an array and you honestly are teaching these students probably the things that are going to give them the most like immediate satisfaction and confidence when they walk in on EMS or on a placement because they can say hey I've actually 
like placed a catheter before. I I can do this, right? So that's a huge thing. And then launching out into their career. But you just have like a wide array of experience. And you're honestly, the fact that you are walking alongside these students from day one when they walk into the hospital through to graduation, you get to see them every single step of the way. And that's how we met. Honestly, you were assigned as my advisor when I went to Edinburgh University. And so you got to see me through the good, the not so great. And now here I am out in practice. And a lot of that, uh, a lot of those clinical skills come down to what you taught us in those clinical skills lab. So your official title right now is a lecturer in clinical skills. But like I said, a lot of what you do goes into the day-to-day lives of these students. And so that's why I'm so extremely excited to talk to you about what has changed for these veterinary students over the last 10 years. And so let's dive into the question of with these students, like what do you think has changed in their goals from say 10 years ago to my class even? Um, Like what do you think has changed in their mindset? So when I came to the vet school, I would say that a lot of the vet students I worked with wanted to graduate and work in mixed general practice. That seemed to be, you know, when I trained as a vet nurse, I worked in a mixed general practice. And it seemed to be the norm that you did mixed general practice and you did your own out of hours. And that was the practice provided that. And then over the years that I worked in the hospital, you know, the emergency clinics were established where you only did nights, you didn't do any days, the night shift with staff were purely night staff, and then the day staff were day staff and they didn't do on call. And actually that the mixed practice setting certainly has evolved a lot so that these days we certainly seem to have much more of a branch pathway where once you graduate, students will tell me that they want to only do small animal practice or some of them will only want to do equine. And the only thing I would say to that, actually, is that when I meet students in first or second year and I ask them what they want to do, some of them will say, I want to be an equine vet. They just that's what they want to do. A lot of them will say they're not sure. But interestingly, those who sometimes tell me that they want to be an equine vet, when I meet them in fourth year again and say, you know, remember that time when I met you in first year, you want to be an equine vet. What do you want to do now? A lot of them sometimes come around and go, well, actually, I went on farm and I absolutely loved it. And so I I don't know if I want to do equine betting yet. I want to maybe go out into mixed practice or I want to go and do some internship in farm animal. I don't know. So some of them kind of come in with this very determined way of (laughs) what they see themselves as a career being a vet. And then they sort of um, they get halfway through and they find these other pathways that they never thought of before. Probably meet like inspiring tutors as well. You know, I think some people that they uh, teach them, they love to, being taught by that and it makes them suddenly want to know that subject more. Absolutely. And I'm laughing a little bit because I'm like, I'm guilty. I was that person. <laughs> I definitely went in being like, because I had come off of like doing an internship in Kentucky. And I was like, I'm going to be an equine vet. And then about a year later, I was like, I'm going to be a mixed animal vet. And now I'm in small animal. So Yeah, it changes. But you get to walk alongside them and kind of hit these checkpoints to be like, okay, this is what you want to do. And then four years later, you're like, so how'd that work out for you? (laughs) Did you change your mind? And it's absolutely okay that they did. Yeah. So looking at the change in the goal. So and basically what you said is in this maybe 10 years ago, everyone was like mixed animal practice. That's the main goal. Would you say that a majority of people are now focusing a little bit more niche when they come into vet school, like they are saying, oh, I I definitely want to do small or large, not necessarily this whole mix. And then 
the flip side of that is, do you think that is a result of the change in the greater profession? Or do you think the greater profession has changed because of the goals of the students? Oh, I think that's quite a good question, actually. Small animal is the most popular, I would say, when I meet students is what they want to do when they graduate. I think that we always talk about their role being a multidisciplinary profession and that as a vet when you graduate you have to be able to deal with all these species and there is always an ongoing discussion isn't there about separating it and having a small animal only qualification and an equine only for me I I don't personally think that's a good idea because for these students I have met who have changed their mind as life has gone on they see different opportunities are available to them I think that the working life may be I don't know, I'm, this is my thought process because I'm not 100% sure, but I do wonder if the work-life balance situation is what has driven the change in the veterinary profession. This introduction to e-clinics and emergency out-of-hours provision for small animal practice. When I worked in small animal practice, the practice I worked in was an eight-vet practice and we did on-call and we had one person on-call every night doing large animal and one on-call doing small and then them sharing the phones amongst each other. And that was a one in four and that's they did it all the time. And and actually nowadays that particular practice, all the practices in the local area run their own out of hours emergency. So instead of them doing a one in four, they're now on like a one in 16. And that must totally transform your lifestyle. So I think with the e-clinics and stuff, maybe that's come about by this need for work-life balance and, you know, that early changes to you know, mental health, being able to keep yourself fresh and stay in the profession for a long time. I'm guessing that's possibly the driver, but I'm not 100% sure. I think that seems like it might be the what drove it originally. There's definitely, a, I think, a, a multifactorial approach. And I think that's why no one really knows what the answer is to this question. But that's why it's so fun to ask and be what is your take on this? Because uh, everyone has such a unique perspective. Yeah. And do you think mm, it's hard to ask this in the right way, but there's definitely been a change in the ratio of guys to girls that are graduating in the last 10 years. Do you think that has had anything to do with the drive and the change of the goals of these students? Very possibly. So I don't know why the ratio between girls and guys has changed. I do wonder if when I was at school, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily necessarily I mean I wasn't bright enough anyway to be fair at school I'm a vet nurse I wasn't actually bright enough to get my chemistry A level and that was the big thing that you needed to get into vet school and still wouldn't be able to get my chemistry A level but when I was at vet school it was very much the boys in the school were supported and the expectation was that they would go on and I'm sure that's changed a lot over the years that now actually like you know equal rights and equal opportunities and I do feel like that Actually, I think women are just very driven and being able to focus on where they want to go. And so I don't know, I guess as someone who absolutely does not want to stand in the middle of a field at four o'clock in the morning with short sleeve T-shirt on and assisting, you know, a colleague carving a cow, I wouldn't choose that as my option. I would do it <laughs> practice where I'm in a warm clinic. So perhaps that's the reason it's changed. But yeah. Yeah, you're definitely not alone with that. I don't think I would actively choose to do that most days. But granted, then you have the older generation, and I'm really going to hit some hot buttons on this one, but the older generations where not everybody, but there's a good number of that are like, well, that's what just has to be done. So why don't you do it? 
Oh, yes. I mean, my grandfather was a vet. He owned a practice. Um, he graduated and he bought a practice. Well, he actually did, he bought a house on the west coast of Cumbria that had a cottage in the garden and he converted that into a practice and opened the practice in that area. And he, he worked for the Royal Army Veterinary Corps and he did all of that. It was all large animal pretty much when he opened his practice. And then he added a, an assistant and then they moved premises, you know, after 20 years or something, they moved to an actual premises up the road, which they, you know, bought a house, typically old fashioned practice that's been converted from a house, you know, and they built their practice from it. And now I think it's a four vet practice and it's predominantly small animal. And that's changed in my grandfather's time because, you know, farmers have I think also I guess they've probably lost farms over the years because farmers are leaving their profession too but yeah when he started out it was all farm animals so therefore you know my nana who is not vetty at all and was never actually she was like she was like a magistrate she was like the chairman of the local magistrate court but she used to answer his out of hours phone for him <laughs> and oh, wow. he would go out but he'd be out every single night very typically like James Herriot He'd be called out and he would just be about to sit down for his Sunday roast or he'd be about to just climb into bed and somebody'd phone and he'd just jump in the car and drive and it doesn't matter if he'd done it the night before or if he'd been on for the last 16 weeks. It's just normal for him to do out of hours. Mm-hmm. Well, no, for me, it's just too cold. <laughs> I feel that there's so many better options nowadays that we we don't have to do it that way anymore. And I think that's where a lot of the ongoing conversation is, at least in the social sphere right now with veterinary medicine, that the mindset is changing for the better because we we have we have better options. We have, well, to a degree, more staffing, I guess, relative. Yeah. So a lot of different things happening on that side, but it's still, it is interesting to bring up those questions with the older generations and say, all right, why do you think it is the way that it is? And that kind of ties into our next question of, we've talked about the change in the goals of people being from mixed to small to more niche, I guess. But in the students that you've taught in the last 10 years, what do you think the expectations were for their education, say 10 years ago, compared to my graduating class? So I think that students nowadays, I think they sometimes, because I don't mean this all the time, but I do think sometimes we have more of a demand for providing a service because education is so costly that the requirement for that is to provide a good service. So for my team, we have increased the number of tutors. We've increased the number of classes. We've increased the number of resources available and we provide our resources in a multiple different directions. We also throw it back to the students to ask them what they want. And we have these student liaison committee meetings because actually I think we want the students to get a lot out of it. And I think their expectation is that they should be prepared for day one out in practice. Sometimes I think they get in the course and a couple of years in and they feel like maybe they're not. So their expectation is that we need to get them trained quite quickly and so our responsibility as tutors is to reassure students actually in third year you are not expected to know everything Um, (laughs) but even though you sort of feel like you're supposed to because I think you feel a bit overwhelmed going out onto clinical EMS and actually from practice point of view that's also the reassurance that you want to give to students in practice is we get a lot of students who are really worried about going on to clinical EMS because they feel that they should know everything 
before they go out. And you go, but where you don't need to know everything because that's the reason you're going on clinical EMS. You're going to develop those skills. You're going to learn from other people. And I think going into practice for those people who are that worried, we need to reassure them and then guide them a little bit and hold their hand a little bit till they see that that actually mm-hmm. they need to know everything. And then when they graduate, they have to have day one competences because that's what we train them to. But we don't have to have day one competences from day one of their entire veterinary degree. Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at VetX. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession. Much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our VetEx community. The Thrive community is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of that Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. That's such a big thing. And I think one thing that I was taught before I even went to vet school, which kind of carried me through and gave me a little bit more security was something that one of the vets that I worked with said, and he's like, when you graduate, because I was so worried, I would ask all the students who would come and and shadow with us to be like, okay, what is something that you felt vet school didn't prepare you for? Like I was asking every single one to the point where the vet literally would look at me and be like, shut up, please. (laughs) Like, don't ask that question. And so he finally told me, just so you know, when you graduate, you will have the necessary tools and experiences to survive. It's everything that you do from that point that will be training you and making you into the vet that you're going to be. And him telling me that like straight to my face, I was like, oh, oh, that changes things. So for these students, like I can definitely see and feel the kind of pressure that you guys are under because we do have these students who are terrified to go out on EMS. They're terrified to go out into the real world as practicing veterinarians. And um, I think there's a lot of facets to that. And part of it, I think, comes down to the type of mentorship that they're going to be provided when they launch out into practice. And that's also where one of my favorite things to talk about comes into play. Because vet school, like you, you guys can only prepare us for so much. You only have four or five years to cram things into our brain and hope that something sticks. Yeah. Like literally throw it against the wall. Maybe it sticks. Maybe it doesn't. And then from there, it's how do the veterinarians that we work with in practice, how do they continue the work that you've already done? But you hit on something that was a little bit of a hot topic when I was back in school with how a lot of students, they did feel, I hate to use the word privileged, but I'm going to say that very cautiously in that there were definitely things that they were like, well, I'm paying so much money for this school. I should be getting X, Y, and Z. And I would just kind of roll my eyes and be like, you have no idea how much work that these guys are doing behind the scenes. But is that the kind of pressure that you guys felt coming from the students? So I think it's a conversation I have with the team, actually, occasionally, because actually we all feel that the students are paying enough that we should be providing them with this really good. So when we feel that we're not doing enough, we feel that actually they should be complaining and saying, actually, I am paying a lot for my education. But equally, there are times that you go, 
if you actually broke down the cost of like everything that is provided, then actually you probably find that while it is an expensive course, there is a lot of money that goes into it. And so for every single student that pays a lot of fees, when you think of how many, so you know, in a class we give out gloves, every single student gets surgical gloves. And whilst that doesn't seem like a lot for that one student, we might give you three pairs because you break them. That, you know, each pair of gloves is what, pound fifty each or something. It adds up. That's only one class. In another class, you could go through five different needles and syringes and all this, you know, the bottles of fluid we buy in and all this stuff. We are constantly trying to be sustainable and replenishing things. But things are quite costly. And so, therefore, it does cost to run the department mm. that we run. And therefore, as a student, we should give you really good classes. But equally, you are paying for your education. So therefore, we should be doing that. That's what we should be doing. And we should Mm -hmm. be providing really good teaching. And sometimes the thing that affects us as a team that we go, okay, you know, the students should complain about this is actually if we're a bit short staffed. And we're like, we need more tutors to be able to teach. That's what we need. And that's where the money should be going. But equally, if you sit down and break down the cost of all the equipment we have, we do spend a lot of money on it already anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm sort of in mixed feelings. I totally understand when a student does come and say, I'm paying for my education. This should be given to me. I totally sympathize with that. But then sometimes I do actually turn around to a student and say, have you actually ever added up the cost of that class? Because sometimes I think demanding that all the time gets a bit lost because actually we work very hard to provide a really good service. We are constantly reviewing it to make it better. And so therefore we do try our best, but equally we appreciate that you're paying a lot of money for us to try our best. It's such a back and forth conversation that I'm really glad is continuing to happen and that we have advisors like yourself who are like, honestly, you you walk alongside these students. So you really kind of know what's going on in their lives for the most part. And so you can come back to the advisory committee and say, hey, these are the things that the students are saying. These are the things that they're concerned about. How do we meet their expectations, but also set up realistic expectations for them or realistic goals for them? so that you can continue to have that conversation. Because of course, I feel these students really do need, to some respect, need to have some kind of breakdown about what they actually are getting in their education so that they can look at it through a different lens and be like, oh my gosh, like the amount of, because it's the same thing. They go out into practice and they say, well, I don't make it, like vets don't make a lot of money. You're paying for my time. You're paying for my experience and my training. And then I'm sitting here going, that's exactly what you were paying for in vet school, but you were complaining about it then. So it's just um, calling the kettle black, I feel like, to a degree. We did for a while, actually, write the price of some of our simulators, mostly because people move them around and then break them as well. But, you know, for example, one of our simulate, one our colic simulator is £25,000 to buy. And then to actually replace the internal organs is £3,000 every time. So it's very costly. That's one piece of equipment that is used in a class. And then we have another company who make models for us to you know, do uterine palpation, uh, rectal palpation classes. So they have like lots of uteruses, but we have loads of pelvises and they're put on frames. And all these frames have been, we've specifically bespokely paid for them because that's how we need them to be. And we build models. So in our team, we've created a blood pressure mannequin 
and that's cost us money. It's not that expensive because we created it in-house. But equally, it's expensive and all this stuff like costs money to buy. So we used to put our prices on it. <laughs> um, and uh, some of it's really scary, the price of it. Like, you know, a £25,000 colic simulator and a £10,000 CPR mannequin, uh, you know, anaesthetic machines are £3,000 each. And like, it's just mm-hmm. it's just expensive, you know, to set it all up and maintain it because it's not just the one-off purchases and also you know I do tell students this but if you drove a car if you were teaching someone to drive a car then your clutch in that car generally gets broken quicker than it would if somebody who could drive is actually driving it and so our simulator and our equipment generally gets broken quicker because at the moment the students are introduced to it they don't know necessarily how soft or gentle to handle it and that's part of the learning process and developing Mm -hmm. that skill so then things get broken or trashed and we have to fix them and the valve on the back of the anaesthetic machine is a good example Uh, when you're occluding the inner tube of the vein you burst the valve at the back and so that has to be (laughs) placed all the time and and so there's just you know it's it's costly and it's but it's the teaching environment that we have it's safe we appreciate that things break and therefore, that you know, that's what we deliver and we provide as part of our teaching. But yeah, I, I honestly, I, I specifically do remember you guys going over the valve on the bane and being like, "Please don't break it. I know it's going to happen, but please don't do it. It's expensive." I've actually introduced a thing just now, so you have to include the valve. For, if anyone doesn't use a bane and they're listening in, and um, the bane has an inner tube, and you have to like briefly occlude it to see if it actually has any leaks on the inner tube. And so we teach the students to like do put your finger on it for more than half a second. And so now I actually get the students to go boop like this. Right, you go boop, and they go. And now they don't do it as much because they boop at the same time. Oh yeah, that's actually a good way because it has like the in your mind you're like oh the timing of saying bop is easier than counting one half of a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's smart. (laughs) I started doing it myself to show them and then I realized that actually saying it actually works quite well. So yeah, I I want you to say boop. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think I'm a bit crazy. I mean, I think. (laughs) Hey, if it gets them to remember it, then by all means, by all means. So we definitely went down a little bit of a bunny trail on that one. But we we hit on what the expectations of the students nowadays, I feel is super high, and it should be for worse or for better. So then what did the expectations on the education for the students like 10 years ago look like? So I joined the team just at the time when our practical assessments, the final year assessments had been reviewed. And so when I joined the team, I believe that the reason it was being reviewed is because actually there was this, at the time, quite a big focus on the theory side at that point. So they still did the final year rotations and they still had to pass all of those. But actually the major hurdle was this, the final year exam. And although this that still features over the years since then the percentage of weighting of certain aspects of final year assessments has moved a little bit more into covering the practical side of it so when I joined the team OSCEs which is the OSCE which is a practical assessment it was just a must pass when I joined it you had to attempt it if you passed the station that was great if you failed it, you had to reset it but actually in the last few years that has now become 10 percent of the final year assessment because actually the need for practical assessment has become more important and that's I think because everything you get taught in vet school is important and 
whilst you're learning the theory, you can get quite bogged down on trying to prepare yourself to pass your theory exams that you maybe shelve a little bit of that time that's needed to develop those practical skills. And I think those of us in the team who see that happening felt that actually what we wanted was we wanted a happy balance. And we said, why? You need to learn this. But we, you also do need to be able to, you know, take an air bubble out of a syringe and needle and put a needle, you know, be able to do it aseptically and, you know, handle a needle and syringe without stabbing yourself and that kind of stuff. Um, and so we would quite like that to be considered as important as, as everything else. Mm-hmm. And so their balance has changed a bit over the years to add in a bit more practical skill assessment. Those uh, vet students like 10 or so years ago, they were really expecting to just learn more of the theory. They weren't as, do you think they were as scared to go out into practice as the vet students nowadays? I'm not sure. The final year rotations were slightly, there was less in the year as well, I think is a big thing. So actually there was the rotation, core rotations had a little bit of longer time spent on it. So I think the practical side when you're actually on clinics was quite good because we only when I joined the vet school I think we had 90 students in a year and now we have 180 so it's a huge increase in numbers and then all of the core rotations and stuff have been altered to fit all of that and allow the EMS allow the required clinical rotations but I think that back then when I joined when in my day (laughs) um, I think that students were able to spend more time on one clinical rotation so they got to know the team a lot better whereas now I think because you're doing one week at a time and moving on to something else I think that um, does pose a little bit of a disadvantage for students who maybe take a few days to settle in but the knock-on from those years gone by is that actually the topics that you now have available to you on core rotations is much bigger so you know you have now we have an ophthalmology rotation and we have we have neurology and we have we always had soft tissue and orthopedics, but we have, you know, ECC and there's just the, all of the rotations have increased in the opportunities that you do. So I think that people are maybe a bit more nervous these days because they see, you know, all of the multifacets of which direction they could end up in. And perhaps that's maybe a little bit more overwhelming. There's definitely a lot more. Yeah, so they're learning a lot more. There's a lot more information that we now know and that can make a huge difference when you go out into practice. And then on the flip side, I feel there's a lot because of maybe a little bit because of social media, there's a little bit more fear because of the expectations coming from the clients, which that could be its own episode, I feel, for vet students. But do you feel that the vet students graduating nowadays, they're feeling that kind of fear or that kind of pressure? I think that the feedback from the students was that we needed to prepare them to deal with clients because it's not just about looking after the pet, but it's also about being able to communicate with an owner. So there's a there's a whole other job, isn't it, in itself? And and so the feedback from the students was that they felt really nervous about client communication. And then we had a great colleague of mine, Jane Brown. She joined the team. She was a small animal clinician from the small animal hospital, and she has picked up comm skills and just exploded it. So she developed this huge comm skills classes. She enrolled actual clients from the hospital who volunteered, who come onto the campus and they act as clients and because they're real clients. And so they students get to get to interact with them. They get to do role plays with them. And she's very much focused on that. Actually, you need to be comfortable in talking 
to clients about everything, getting to know them, getting to know their pet, and then getting to be able to do tasks whilst communicating with an owner. So she's got all these classes that are designed for that. And then also the other thing that she has focused on is actually you've got to be able to communicate with your colleagues. And so she's developed this colleagues perspective class where you the students have to interview colleagues, staffs and nurses, accounts, receptionists, animal care assistants, anyone in the practice that isn't a vet. She brings them in and you get interviewed by the students. So you, you can tell them about how you interact with the vet and what your expectations are when you're working with a vet and what you want out of them, you know, and just improves their communication and makes them understand how the practices work better. So it's quite People on the podcast can't see this, but as you're speaking, my smile keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because this is the type of thing. And I'm like, yes, oh my gosh, I wish we had that when I was in final year. And I think I remember sitting down with Jane and the very like, we early parts of this and we were talking about different ideas. I'm so glad to see that it has like blossomed and turned into its own thing. Oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing. So I need to reach out to her and see how things are going. But in that aspect of communications, oh gosh, I have so many like honestly questions that are in my head. I have to pick one of them, pick one of them. (laughs) Struggling here. So in the aspect of client communications, I love that they're focusing on not just the like talking with a client aspect, but the whole emotional intelligence side of it. And I feel like this is something that we're going to have to do in the bonus episode is talking about the actual like aspects of it and how are they fitting all of these classes in together? Because obviously there's a ton more information that we have now that we didn't have 10 years ago. And now we have to fit this whole other level of veterinary medicine that is surrounding the client and the emotional intelligence and the communications aspect. And we're trying to fit it all into four and five years. And there's no perfect way to do it. And I, I want to talk about that a ton more. So I know we're running short on our, our first part of the episode here. So I'll, we'll cut it short here. But if you guys want to hear more, we have a ton more to talk about, honestly. Um, and you want to get access to the bonus content, definitely go and sign up to VEDEX um, so that you can have access to this and a ton more content. But um, Carolyn, before we jump into the bonus episode, uh, is there anything else that like I want to give you an opportunity just to Talk about things that you're excited about and any little bits about the university here. Oh, great. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you for listening. So for me, I love working with students. I love helping them develop their skills for their future career. And for me, the thing that I find really helpful is if a student feels a bit overwhelmed by what they're doing, I encourage them wholeheartedly to seek me out If they feel that they're a bit behind on skills or they feel a little bit overwhelmed by going out into practice, seek one of us in the clinical skills team out because that's what we're here for. Our job is to reassure you and to help you and guide you into that development of skills. And so if anyone is listening and you are feeling scared to go out and clinically immerse or even, you know, the simplest things. So I am fully aware because I do say this to my students that I was taught to take air bubbles out of a syringe. Something as simple as that. If you're going, I don't actually know how to do this, come and find one of us and we'll show you. Because we know that we were shown ourselves. You know, we didn't suddenly wake up one day being able to do all of the skills that we do. We look very comfortable and competent being able to do them. But actually, we had to learn 
And so that's why we're in teaching now, because we want to help you learn. So therefore, if you feel a little bit like you just don't know what you're doing, you're scared of anaesthesia. Everyone's scared of anaesthesia. <laughs> you know, you don't know how to use a catheter. You don't really even know how to hold the dog's leg properly to be able to get a cephalic vein. Come and find one of us. We will spend the time and show you. And that I think, you know, whatever vet school you're in, go and find somebody, speak to your personal tutor and voice those concerns because there will be somebody in your university who will take you to and give you that time. And that is exactly the type of advisor and mentor that I wish every single student could have in vet school and then also when they launch out into practice. And I think part of the reason that I love mentoring so much is partly because of you, honestly, and how just the personal attention you're able to give to each of these students. So that's a little thank you to you for um, <laughs> making me into the, the mentor crazy person that I am today. But for everybody else who is listening, like honestly, if you found anything in this episode that was valuable to you guys, or you just have any other questions, feel free to reach out to myself. Carolyn will put your information in the show notes for students and new grads to reach out to. But uh, definitely stick around and go and find that bonus content so that we can keep talking about this. So um, until next time, y'all. See ya. Bye. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also, leaving a review of the show on iTunes would be greatly appreciated because, again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Bet Life. Oh, 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 o